1908, Mississippi enacted prohibition, more than a decade before the federal government did the same. But truth be told, Mississippi was actually one of the latecomers to governmental enforcement of temperance from alcohol. It might surprise you to learn that during the 1840s, when the first German brewers arrived introducing lager beer to America, there was an increase nationally in the temperance movement, many historians suggesting that it was inspired by anti-immigrant sentiment and bigotry. This was also the time when individual states began passing laws prohibiting either the manufacture, transportation, or sale of alcohol. Maine, the northernmost state at the time, was the first in passing prohibition in 1846. Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Michigan, Connecticut, New York, New Hampshire, Delaware, Indiana, Iowa, and the Minnesota and Nebraska territories all followed suit between 1852 and 1855. In 1860, there were 1,269 breweries in the United States producing over 1 million barrels of beer for a population of just over 31 million people. In 1863, there were 161,000 barrels of beer produced and consumed in New England alone, with every one of those states at the time having some sort of prohibition law on the books. By 1867, there were more than 3,700 breweries in the country, producing over 6 million barrels annually. By 1873, there were 4,100 breweries or more, producing a total of more than 9 million barrels of beer each year. But between 1880 and 1910, the number of breweries shrank, not because demand had fallen, but because of consolidation of other breweries and competition from bigger regional brands. By 1916, three years before Prohibition is passed, 23 of the 48 states, as well as the District of Columbia, had all voted to become dry. June 27, 1919, Congressman Andrew Volstead introduced a bill that would nationally prohibit possession, manufacture, sale, transportation of intoxicating beverages. The law subsequently passed the House and the Senate, but President Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat, he vetoed the bill in October, but his veto was overridden by a Republican-controlled House and Senate. The Volstead Act went into effect as the 18th Amendment to the United States Constitution, the only amendment we've ever had that's taken away a right rather than protect it and it became federal law on January 16, 1920. Hundreds of breweries and distilleries were closed. Thousands of jobs were lost. Brewers, coopers, mechanical maintenance crews, teamsters, any and all service industries related to brewing and distilling. Millions of dollars in tax revenue disappeared overnight. And then 13 years after this experiment, it would be overturned by the 21st Amendment. But the lingering effects of prohibition in some places in the United States are still with us or have only recently been gotten rid of. And this begs the question, what in the f*** were they thinking? This is episode 21. Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, 
that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Thank you, Jessica. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bruise Traveler. I am Alan Tatman, and thank you for finding us out here in the podcasting universe. I'm back in Jefferson City for a few weeks, uh, planning next year's journeys. Just relaxing here on the bluffs over the Missouri River. On today's episode, we're going to talk to Leslie Henderson, who, along with her husband, Mark, founded Lazy Magnolia Brewing Company of Kiln, Mississippi, the oldest production brewery in the state of Mississippi, which began all the way back in 2004. Leslie has some fantastic insights into building a craft brewing business in a regulatory environment, which uh, may maybe had a few more obstacles than most. So we've got that to talk about. Tony and I also sat down, and he has a report on a finding that came out just in the last couple of weeks. The worldwide barley production is down because of global climate change, and all scientific projections indicate that it's just going to get worse. Yeah, that's a fun topic, not just for us beer lovers, but for everybody. But first, before we get going, just a quick request from all of us here at the Bruce Traveler team. We need your help, and this is also very easy for you to do. First, go to the Facebook page at the Bruce Traveler podcast, if you haven't already, and please like us. Also, this is what we really need you to do. Invite all of your friends to like the page as well just that simple, and it would mean a whole lot to us. Secondly, subscribe on iTunes. Now, I know many of you have Android and Windows platforms on your devices, but Apple makes an app for you. It's free. If you could see your way to possibly getting that app and then subscribing to the podcast, it would mean so much to us. Also, once you've done that, if you could give us a five-star rating and a short review about what you like about the show, that too would really help us. Now, you Apple users who listen to the show, and you haven't subscribed yet or given us a review or a rating. Hey, guys, what's the holdup? <laughs> Come on, it takes less than a couple of minutes and would really help us get in the direction we want to go. And the reason that iTunes is so important is because it is the largest podcasting platform in the world, and Apple Podcast really does impact the market. So any assistance you can give us in building audience will only make the podcast better. We're coming up on our six-month mark here now, and we are so looking forward, with your help, to bringing a better program to you in your podcast library. So thank you for your consideration on this matter. One more thing. Have you got questions, comments, ideas? Well, let me know. Send us a message over on Facebook or send me an email. Cheers at thebruisetraveler.com. I'd love to hear from you. But now, let's get on with the show. Back in August, on my South by Southeast road trip, I ended up at Lazy Magnolia Brewing. So let's head on down to the Gulf Coast and see what's happening in the state of Mississippi. And now we head on down the road with the Bruised Traveler. Where will the highway take us this week? Where will we lift a pint? And who will we meet? Let's find out. Now... I've traveled to a lot of states, and while I've been to the Gulf Coast of Alabama and Florida, I'd never been to coastal Mississippi. Now, I had driven through Mississippi a lot on my way to New Orleans or Mobile, and back when I worked on the towboats after high school, I got off of the boat at Vicksburg, which I found to be just a charming city. 
town even. It's not that big. But I'd never been to the Mississippi coast. So when I found myself, um, I was in Mobile and I was on my way to Lazy Magnolia. I thought, well, I'll take my time and I'm going to take the coastal road, the Highway 90. And it was beautiful. Live oak trees, Spanish moss, white sandy beaches, small coastal towns and cities. It, you just imagine the way it's supposed to look. And, uh, Oh, there was a number of restaurants alongside the road with fresh seafood, and I was tempted to stop. I uh, I ended up staying an, uh, a night in Gulf Islands National Seashore, one of our national parks that's really not that well-known. Great campground there, and the weather couldn't have been any better considering the time of year. I'm a lover of very... Air conditioning, that goes without saying, and sleeping in AC is almost mandatory for me. But uh, the evening there was just fantastic, sitting out alongside the motorhome, enjoying some Sweetwater IPAs, making friends with a family of raccoons. I don't know if they were all family, but I'm pretty sure they were at least cousins. I put a video up on the Facebook page, check out my adventures with the Mississippi Trash Pandas. That sounds like the name of... A country punk band, wouldn't it? The Trash Pandas. The Mississippi Trash Pandas. Yeah, I can see that. After Gulf Islands National Park, the next day I went on to Kiln. It's about 10 miles north of Bay St. Louis, if you're familiar with the uh, geography of southern Mississippi. And I stopped into Lazy Magnolia, said hi to everyone before I went to check in at McLeod Park, a county park there on the bayou. And it's Absolutely a fantastic facility, one of the nicest campgrounds I've ever stayed in, and it was only about five minutes from the brewery, so it was perfect place to stay while visiting uh, Leslie and Mark and the, and the crew there at Lazy Magnolia. I was there two nights, and uh, I think I'm going to be heading back to Mississippi probably within the next year. Marilee and I are looking to get away for most of February, and Heading over to Kiln again wouldn't be a bad thing at all. But uh, if we're going to do that, I'm told uh, that time, that that time of year, it's uh, the campgrounds are very full with the snowbirds. So we mean, if we're going to go there, we need to make our plans soon. Anyway, that's for another time. So this past trip was great, and I sat down with Leslie Henderson, and here it is: your interview of the week. Hey guys, I'm in Kiln, Mississippi, the home of Lazy Magnolia Brewing, and I'm here with Leslie Henderson. She and her husband, Mark, are the co-owners and the founders, founders of Lazy Magnolia. How are you doing? Fantastic. Busy day here. It's a beautiful I, day in South Mississippi. It is. It is gorgeous outside. Uh, even for August, I expected coming down here this week to do nothing but melt, but... <laughs> But because the, the we rain, have air conditioning, right? Well, and the rains kind of kept the outside temperature pretty cool, and in, in the evenings it's just been absolutely gorgeous. You have a busy day today. I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule of to come in and sit down and have a chat. I've been a big fan of your beer for a long while, and we've carried a number of your beers over the years on tap. And right now, back in Jeff City, uh, the uh, Orange sangria is going crazy. Oh, isn't that a fun it's beer? It's a beautiful beer. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And right, I'm drinking the blackberry sour, which we've had this on tap at the pub before. Good stuff. It is. It is really tasty. Mouthwatering. Yeah. How many how many beers have you got on tap here right well, now? Well, on about. tap, I mean the wall we can really manage about 20 on okay. the wall, plus there's other selections in bottles. Right. And that's not everything that we have. 
Um, they're, they're little things kind of hiding in the corner, rotating in and out. Um, the head brewer, he, this is his little experimentation ground, so he'll pop in with something that's a one-off, and we have it for one Friday, and that's gone. So it's, it's always an adventure coming in here. Every one of your beers that I've ever had, I've enjoyed on one level or another. Uh, I know the first one that I ever had was your Southern Pecan, which uh, is a really nutty, creamy take on a brown ale. It is, it's really good. We excel with the malty beers, right. and that comes with the water that we have available in this area. That, I, was, I was talking to one of your uh, employees here about the water. Mm -hmm. I, just, I, drank, I just drank some of the water out oh, of the yeah. tap. And it's, it, and, well, here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just delicious. great water. So yeah. where does that come from? A local aquifer, uh -huh. uh, about 1,000 feet down. Um, so it's purified by the, the soil here that has very little industry in this area, right. the local area. Right. So the water comes through, it's purified, it's highly alkaline, has almost no hardness, and that makes it perfect for doing multi-beers. It's, it's really good. How did you and Mark get involved in craft brewing? Um, well, we are both engineers, um, so we are not cool kids, never have been cool kids. So we didn't do cool things. We did hard things. We looked for things that weren't being done that could have a big impact on our, on our lives, on the lives of others. And we saw this as an opportunity to shine a good light on the state of Mississippi. 15 years ago, there were no craft breweries in Mississippi. Home brewing was illegal here. There were very few craft breweries in the Southeast and uh, people thought Heineken was a fancy beer. <laughs> um, so that's what we were dealing with. Um, there, at the time, you know, everybody had all three kinds of beers, Bud Miller Coors. That's really that's all you could get, all anybody cared about. But we saw great potential in our state and the people here and we wanted to do something that would improve everybody's lives and that was a way of of bringing good things to our state and exporting some of the great things about our state to let people know hey this is a place of charm and hospitality and beauty check out what we have we are not all the caricatures that people have made right. mississippi to be were you doing home brewing before you got into the Well, it was beer? illegal at the I time, know, so I don't want to put that on tape that we were home brewing so <laughs> No, much. you would never do it. Maybe no, you never. were going across state lines and doing some home brewing. Who knows? But yeah, we were doing quite a lot of it. Right. And we enjoyed the process. Statutes we enjoyed limitations out now. Isn't uh, it? Yeah, whatever. Okay. Um, <laughs> we enjoyed the process of creating the recipes and developing the the process mm -hmm. and the products, but we're just not big drinkers. So we had to find an audience who right. would um, be our consumers and our fans, and they encouraged us to go pro, which we said was a terrible idea because um, the South wasn't ready for it. But they convinced us otherwise, and so here we are. You are you. This was established in two thousand and five or two thousand and three. The original brewery was established in two thousand and four. We got our license in two thousand five, January, and we started brewing the next day. So this is the oldest brewery in the state of Mississippi. The oldest packaging brewery in okay. Mississippi. There had been brew pubs in the state okay. before we came along. Oh, they don't count. Well, I mean, they do. They were a big influence on us, so I right. say they count. They had some fantastic brewers, too, so I don't want to discount what they no, did. No, 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 no. I mean, a lot of people 
getting into uh, packaging and mm-hmm. distribution, sure. you are the oldest. We are the oldest packaging right. brewery in the state. Because that's uh, another level of... Of crazy, yes. <laughs> I was going to say another level of difficulty. It is. Uh, and challenges that you don't have with a brew pub because brew pub, you're making your beer there. It's being consumed there unless it's being taken away in growlers. You don't have to worry about shipping. You don't have to worry about shelf life. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about pasteurization or non-pasteurization or any of that stuff. So a production brewery Mm -hmm. is, there's there's a whole lot more challenges. But there was another law. You couldn't have a tasting room in a production brewery up until 2017. That's right. Were you guys instrumental in getting that changed? We paid for it. We we bought that law. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That had to be... How long did you work on getting that law? 14 years. 14 years. Yep, took many steps in between. So in 2012, we finally got laws changed to allow high-gravity beer in in the state. Right. Um, So we worked with a consumer group on one side, uh, Raise Your Pints. They were on the consumer side to allow high-gravity beer into the state. We're on the manufacturing side to allow breweries to make high-gravity beer in excess of the state limit for sale so that we could export it. Plus, at the same time, we got laws changed that allowed us to give samples to people to in the brewery, and we got laws changed to allow home brewing to happen. So it was a joint effort of Raise Your Pints and Lazy Magnolia at the time. So in 2012, that changed, which opened up the industry, and other breweries started opening in the state. So that gave us over the five year, you know, the next five years, the political pressure that we all work together, the Mississippi Brewers Guild. I say we bought it, but um, we were just the biggest and most established brewery in that effort. But yeah, it was the Mississippi Brewers Guild and the growing pressure from consumer groups and other states changing their laws at the same time that finally brought about enough pressure. See, in Missouri, we had, there was uh, John McDonald with Boulevard Mm -hmm. and uh, Tom Schlafly with Mm -hmm. Schlafly Brewing. You know, those two guys were probably the most instrumental in getting the laws changed in Missouri. But it was different there. The laws in Missouri were basically on the books to protect one company. Sure. You know, it wasn't about, you know, social uh, social. Neither was it in Mississippi. Why do you think the state legislature was so reticent to change the law for all those years? Well, change is bad, right? People fear change in the South more than anybody else. I mean, you can look at any aspect of life in the South and it's 20 to 40 years behind the times compared to the rest of the country. Because in, in some ways that's good. We take our time, we see what's gonna happen, we watch the trends. I mean, Mississippi was nowhere near the first wave of microbreweries, right? No. There was a whole rise and crash that we never even saw. Right. We were never even part of that. Right. And we came in on the tail end of the previous crash and just rode that slow wave up. Now we're in the middle of another boom. And you found a market. And we found a market. I mean, timing is everything. So, yeah, it's just that change is bad. Change is scary. That's all it is. Yeah. Change is bad. Change is scary. One of the things I've noticed when I go around camping is that every campground I go to, whether they're public or privately owned, they all say the same thing. No alcohol (laughs) consumed on the property so yeah you, right so you have to <laughs> you have to stay inside the rv and do your drinking either that or you yeah I, I, just wrap it up i yeah i guess that law is is there in place of people who don't know how to drink and they act like idiots and then you've got a reason to kick them out 
Yeah, I think it just gives coverage to the the people running the right. place that right. there's a law they can enforce if they feel the need to. Right. And I saw that this time. I saw that in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I saw it in Georgia. I yeah. saw it in Alabama. And then I think I, it's for insurance purposes more maybe, than anything. Maybe. You know what? I didn't think about yeah. that. It might be. If you be. put a sign up that you're not condoning these activities, right. you have less liability when it happens. Because this campground that's here is absolutely gorgeous. Oh, isn't it? Yeah. It's beautiful for a, for a county uh, park. Oh, yeah. It's, it's top notch. Uh, full hookups on every mm-hmm. site. I mean, they've done a magnificent job. Uh, but uh, and they work with you guys on promotions and oh, different sure. stuff. Like, and then I'm reading the rules, and it says no alcoholic beverage on the premises. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, how's that working? I, uh, okay, I got it. Okay, so let's get back to my questions here. So, why did you and Mark decide on Kiln? Are you from here? Well, we. We're living here already. So after college, you know, we're two engineers. We wanted to stay in the South, preferably Mississippi. What brought you to Kiln? Um, jobs. So my mm-hmm. husband got a job um, in Long Beach, Mississippi, with an electrical engineering firm, and I got a job down in Port Bienville, which is a few miles south of here, at a chemical plant making high-performance plastics. So okay. we had legit real jobs. Okay. Yeah, that's what brought us here. Now, I've got to ask this because I know some of the listeners, and most people, they know Kiln by one thing mm-hmm. or one person. Brett Favre, yes. Brett Favre. Does he ever come by? I see a lot of his family. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't live in this area. He's just north of here in Hattiesburg. Actually, okay. a football know, coach. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. So Is he I see, coaching up there now? I believe he's coaching football at Oak Grove High School. That's the oh, last okay. I knew. I don't, oh. I don't keep up with him okay. really close, but know plenty of his family, yeah. great people. Yeah, yeah solid I, community members. I imagine so. The name. Mm-hmm. Now, I know magnolia is associated with the South. It's I the mean, state flower. It is the state yeah. flower, but it's not not only in Mississippi, but, I mean, it's uh, so in, in southern Alabama and Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Magnolia trees, you know, mm-hmm. they abound here. But the lazy, the adjective lazy in mm-hmm. front of magnolia, what's that all about? Um, it's a good word. Okay. Um, so the pace of life in the South relative to other places like... Anywhere in California, New York City, Chicago, um, you might call it lazy, but we call it slowing down to enjoy the company of our friends and our family, to enjoy music, to sip our beers, to eat our food slowly. It's a good thing. It means you're enjoying life and you're enjoying the company of those around you. Soaking it up, taking it easy. Soaking it up, exactly. Taking time to smell the roses. Mm -hmm. So how big is your production facility here? Um, Well, we have the old portion of the building, which Mm -hmm. is 10,000 square feet. The new part that you can see out of these windows is another 16.5, including the tap room and the cold room. Okay. And what's your annual production? Well, we will produce around 12,000 barrels this year, Uh but we are capable of producing closer to 40. So you have room for growth. We have so much room to grow. Good. Distribution, how many states? Um, About 20. Yeah, that's for for a 12,000 barrel facility, that's a pretty far reach. It is. That's the south for you. This is very low population density, and the population that is here is relatively poor. So we only sell about 15% of our volume in the state of Mississippi. Right. Most breweries our size would sell 50% of their volume in a three-county area surrounding the brewery. So. It's, it's an impact of our low population density and the poverty rate in this mm. area. That's kind of sad, actually. It is sad, but 
I mean, we chose to be here because right. we were bringing uh-huh. dollars. Bringing we're bringing dollars and jobs into right. the state. So it's it's needed here. Yeah, it would be easier to do this somewhere else, but this is where we can make an impact. Well, that's been one of the that's been one of the things that craft brewers lobbying and the guilds and whatnot have said. We can bring jobs to places. Mm-hmm. Now, how, how many people do you have employed here? Um, full-time, we have about 12 to 14. It's, it's kind of in flux right now. And then we have a few part-time people who uh-huh. help in the market. We call them ambassadors. Uh-huh. We have a few part-time taproom people. So that's what how we have right now. How many sales reps have you na- uh, across um, your uh, We area? have three sales reps who are full-time out in the market, and they're supplemented by ambassadors. They're kind of sleepers. They have real jobs or they're full-time students, okay. and we can activate them right. on a weekend for a festival okay. or if something needs to be done at a, a store. So those have been great. Ambassadors are, right. have been fantastic. So like uh, the fellow that, that that's associated with our territory up in Missouri is Dave? Dave, yeah, he's and a full-time guy. He's yeah, full, And he mm-hmm. lives in Dallas? He's near Dallas, near yes. Dallas. Mm-hmm. Your portfolio. You're quite diverse, but I'm sure you have some flagships. Sure, and you know the brewer doesn't choose the flagship. Right. The, our fans do. Okay. And it's always been Southern Pecan. Right. So we're kind of in an interesting place. You know, Southern Pecan is 65 to 70 percent of our volume. Right. Um, and I don't know that many breweries have a flagship that is that strong. So, how does that happen? It's pure luck, man. It's you, pure luck. You don't know. You just, uh, you cannot choose it. It happens. Boulevard. Mm-hmm. I mean, Boulevard Unfiltered Wheat. Yeah. It's been their flagship, and it's... They didn't it, get to pick that. No. No, they wanted... John wanted... He was certain that the pale ale would be mm-hmm. the one that would take off. And they started out, they called it Hefeweizen. Mm-hmm. Boulevard Hefeweizen. And nobody was drinking it. Yeah. And so... They kind of, it kind of dawned on them, well, what if we call it unfiltered wheat? This is 1989. Yes. And they did. They called it unfiltered wheat, and it took off. Mm-hmm. And now it's their, biggest, it's their biggest brand. Language is everything. We made a great beer called Lazy Saison, but nobody around here knows how to say the word Saison. They were intimidated trying to pronounce right. it. They loved the beer, but they refused to order it because they didn't want to sound dumb. Wow. So we'll bring it back someday, but call it a farmhouse ale. There you go. Language is everything. Yeah. Yeah, language is everything, especially with a lot of people in the market that are still familiarizing themselves Mm -hmm. with the craft beer movement. And Mm -hmm. they don't know, they don't know a Saison from a Brett, from a, from a Kolsch. Or they're going to try that and go, ooh, it's gone off. No. Well, yeah. once you learn to love the sour. Right, but you, you put that into the mouth of a novice, and they're right. automatically going to think that you make rotten beers. You know what I tell people when the first time they're trying a sour? I tell them, I said, don't take a sip, take a drink. <laughs> and then it comes out their nose. <laughs> More times than not, people say, well, that's not bad. People take a little sip of it, and they don't get the real taste sure. of it, right? So, anyway. Where were we? You got to set expectations. Was Southern Pecan the first beer that you guys brewed? It was in the first set of beers that we brewed. Uh So we came out with a group of four beers. Southern Pecan was in there, and it immediately started to to gain on the others. What what were the others, and are any of them still in your lineup? We don't still make any of the other ones. Wow. Um, Yeah, we did an amber with some rye called Amberjack. We did a Crystal Bison that we called Blue Heron. That was a lovely beer. 
ahead of its time. Again, cloudy. People didn't know how to handle a cloudy beer at the time. And we did a three-grain light-style beer called Par 3 that we thought would really bring people into the fold. And it didn't because you had to set expectations. If you hand somebody a beer and they're expecting it to taste like Bud Light right. and it doesn't, they're disappointed. But if you hand them a beer that's completely different and say this is nothing like anything you've ever had, their expectations are wiped clean and they can experience the beer for what it is. And that's part of the reason Southern Pecan won. Right. We could win over a Bud Light drinker with Southern Pecan because they didn't expect it to taste like Bud Light. They weren't going to be judging it based upon They weren't going to be disappointed. Yeah. Right. They weren't, they weren't going to be judging it based upon something that they had been drinking for yeah. years. Right. Exactly. Is there something about this industry that when you and Mark got involved in this that really surprised you both? Um, I mean, we were surprised by pretty much everything about it because we were new to this. We were very innocent. We're two engineers. We know how to make stuff. We know how to do it in large quantity consistently with good quality. Manufacturing, we got that. Shinola. You know, <laughs> all the other stuff was what was a complete, um, complete black hole to us. Everything else about it. The regulatory environment, the business aspects of it, how to sell it, everything else was completely new to us. If there was one thing in all of that stuff that was new to you that you were like, I can't believe this, mm-hmm. what, what would it, what was it? Um, just how the distribution system worked. That was that the was a tiers. real the, shocker to me. Not the, that, I mean, distribution works. I mean, that's right. a model that falls out of the universe. No manufacturer wants to have to go deliver their own products right. and handle hundreds and right. hundreds of customers. That model falls out of the universe. Right. But how that system worked and how you had to finagle things to, to get in there, that was news to us. I'm coming at this from the bar perspective. Mm-hmm. You're coming at it from the production perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm the end. I think a good distributor who believes in what you're doing is worth it. it it's worth all the weight of gold in the Absolutely. world. Absolutely, it, it definitely you know? is. And you're dealing with twenty plus distributors in twenty seventy plus seventy distributors in twenty plus states. Mm-hmm. In Mississippi alone, there are four that we deal wow. with. In Texas, there's seven. Right. I mean, yeah, so it's, it's right. a huge number. What do you foresee as some challenges that are coming down the road for independent craft brewers such as yourself and the industry-wide? How do you know that a brewery is independent? If that's important to you, how do you know that what you're drinking is from an independent brewery that is not owned by some multinational conglomerate? Right. How do you know? Right. That's the problem because the big guys, they want to cash in on this independence thing. They want to cash in on this craft thing. And they are doing everything they can to hide the fact that they are not independent, that they are not craft. And that's, that's the real challenge because they can come in with lower pricing, massive distribution. They have easier access to raw materials. All their costs are lower. So, and they, they can get into a grocery store spot if they just want to, where it takes me months of work. So that's the challenge. What can fans of Lazy Magnolia any, expect? Anything new coming down the way? or We constantly have new things because <laughs> people expect something new all the time. My husband calls 
today's craft beer drinkers promiscuous. I simply call them adventuresome, as they should be. You want new... Well, permis- the difference between promiscuous <laughs> and, ve- and adventuresome is just depends upon your perspective. I and I like to have a kinder perspective to the people who want to try all of my new stuff. Um, but no, we're branching out into a lot of things. This is the hospitality state. Our core value is hospitality. When somebody walks in our door, they should have a good experience regardless of what they're after. We have families come in. We have a big box of gourmet popsicles in the corner. I saw that. Right? Are those, are those locally made? They are locally made. And they're fantastic. I might have to break my diet. Yes, you must break your diet. Um, we're putting together some alternative beverages because oftentimes you'll have a family come in and you have the the wife and the son are just huge craft beer fans, but then the dad who's driving around is going, I drink margaritas. Sorry, guys. I just don't like You have a margarita and we, beer. We are developing products that can satisfy right. those people who are dragged in mm-hmm. to a craft brewery thinking, oh, I'm going to have a terrible time, and we turn them around and go, no, you're welcome here too. You're going to have a good time, and we're going to see to that. So it's all about hospitality. So you're... you're uh are you open seven days a week here? Not yet, but starting in September with football season kicking in, we got TV up there, right. we've got speakers, so when the football game's on, we'll be here, and if this is a place people want to hang out, this is a community hangout. Old Miss or Southern Miss, who's the, who's the local favorite team well, college-wise? College-wise, we're so close to Louisiana, LSU tends LSU, to be a favorite. Right. you got University of South Alabama, and USM is very close by, too. I'm a graduate of Mississippi State. Um, but we have a lot of Ole Miss fans, too. So we're friendly to all of them. Anything else that you would like to tell our listeners about Lazy Magnolia uh, that maybe they don't know or I haven't been aware enough to ask? Um, we are working on a line of gluten-reduced beers. Again, staying with the hospitality aspect. Um, we have plenty of fans who have a sensitivity or a full-blown uh, celiac disease, and we want them to be able to enjoy our products just like everybody else. When do you first see that being well, launched? Well, we have the Southern Pecan and the KMG. We already have those in the works. Um, now it's just a matter of getting the neck labels in so we can label those bottles appropriately. Right. And we're getting additional brands certified as we go along. It's a process. You have to right. get testing done. You have to send it to the TTB lab, get special labeling approval, and then get that out there into the distribution channel. So we're targeting Texas, Q4, some of the markets like Whole Foods and Sprouts, sure. um, places where people who are, are looking for yeah, that product. The yeah. people who are shopping for that are going to go looking for that. So that's something we're doing. Again, you know, hospitality rules mm-hmm. everything. What can we do to bring more people in to make people have a good experience? And another thing I know, you're also doing some experimentation with mead. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, that kind of started out as a little bit of a political thing. Um, so Mississippi native wineries could sell direct, could give samples to people. This is years ago. Mississippi distilleries could sell direct and give samples to people. So you're making something that's 17% alcohol or something that's 60% alcohol and you can sell direct to the consumer and give samples, but I'm making a 5% beer and I can't? Okay, we're going to just shake the system up. So I went and got a native winery permit so I could make a little bit of honey wine and then show people that, you know what, a crater did not, in fact, form in the earth because I gave a sample of alcohol to somebody. And it, w- it gave us ammunition at the state legislature to go, this is ridiculous. I can give somebody a sample of 14 or 15% alcohol wine, but I, I'm prohibited from giving them a sample of a 4.5% alcohol beer. 
can you explain this to me? So it was a way for us to just shove that inconsistency in the face of the lawmakers and go, you've got to fix this because it's making us all look like asses. And Mississippi has enough problems, guys. Um, so that it was partly political and partly we had an opportunity to work with um, one of our relatives in the Ellisville area who makes honey. Right. Yeah, that, he does that for a living. So we had a local source of honey that we could do something really cool with in Mississippi. There's a few native wineries that are making muscadine wine, which is interesting and a lot of people love it. Uh, we wanted to go a different route and find out what else could we highlight in Mississippi right. that we do a really good job of here. And we have lots of great honey. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking time out of your day to sit down and talk with us. Uh, and again, I'm all, like I said, I'm a big fan. I'm a big uh, proponent of your uh, draft beers up in the Show Me State. Thank and you. Leslie, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That's it. Okay, cheers. Cheers. Thanks again to Leslie and Mark. Uh, Mark actually took me to dinner that night at a great restaurant, The Steamer, right there on the bayou, uh, watching the wildlife, egrets, herons, and there was even an alligator which cruised there along the surface. Great oysters, royal reds, which are these giant prawns that I'd never heard of before, and they're almost as sweet as lobster. They're so good. Of course, we washed it down with some Lazy Magnolia Southern Pecan Brown Ale on draft. Over dinner, Mark told me about what it was like trying to get the brewery back in order after Hurricane Katrina back in 2005. They were just getting their feet off of the ground at the time, and... um, Well, that's another story. I want to go back and get Mark to tell us that story. His description of getting through that is just a really, really powerful tale in its own right. And so next time that we get down to Lazy Magnolia, I'll have him tell it to you. Lazy Magnolia Brewing is located at 7030 Roscoe Turner Road in Kiln, Mississippi. The tap room, which they call The Porch is open Sunday through Wednesday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and Thursday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. They serve lunch every day but Sunday, and they are dog-friendly, so Cody gets to go with us next time. They have all kinds of events and special promotions going on throughout the year. You should check it out, and if you want to learn more about Mississippi's oldest brewery, check everything out over there on the website, lazymagnolia.com. Hey, ha, da, 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 ya, ha. What's the rumpus? Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing? Hello, Tony Rehagen, a freelance journalist. How you doing, man? Doing well, how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, are you over your jet lag? Jet lag, yeah, with the uh, the, the kind of chest congestion, uh, not so much. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, been, it's been a coffee couple of a uh, couple of days. Yeah, you know, they're there towards the end there was a little bit of a slight respiratory bug going through i picked it up as well um that's what happens when you're in closed confinement with uh with a bunch of people but uh, right. yeah so yeah back home and uh what have you been up to since you got back catching up on work and giving my liver a rest i actually <laughs> haven't had a, i haven't even had a drop since we got back on uh, on on monday so 
So yeah, that'll that'll end tonight. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, but yeah, I was kind of giving a giving a rest. What what a what a whirlwind tour. That was awesome. Right, it was. It was great. I've uh, first my first beer was last night. I'm starting to feel my sinuses are starting to clear up. So I had some uh, Ballast Point uh, Sour Winch last night. It was mm, quite delicious. Nice. Yeah. So what are your uh, impressions of the craft beer scene in Ireland? Well, you and I kind of talked about it too. Uh, it's, it's amazing because uh, you know. We, uh, Ten years ago, that you go over, you go to Europe to kind of look for the, the variety, but it does. It kind of seems, and no offense to them, uh, that I mean, it's it's a, it's a little bit behind ours. I'd, I'd say about you know, it reminds me of, of here about ten years ago. Uh, I, I would absolutely agree on that. Maybe longer, maybe further back. It could be. One of the things that and and Austin Barrett he spoke about this uh, at uh, when last week on the show. Um, in that interview I did with him, but uh, you know everybody seems to be making the same kind of beer, except mm-hmm. except for a couple. Like uh, what was it, uh, the uh, the Black Stag down in Balavorny? Yeah, yeah, they're making some different kinds of beers, and then of course, you know Austin Barrett there at Dick Max. They're but everybody else seems to be kind of stuck in the in the the same old same old rut. It's true, and they're trying to make the IPAs. And you and I talked about this too, and, and we talked about it on the on the podcast. It's the the, the one they're trying to branch out to the IPAs that kind of built our craft beer scene. And none of them, uh, the the Dick Mac, their their regular IPA, the one their their new one, the one I can't pronounce. Uh, Togue Bogue. Is, is, yeah, it's, yeah it, it's fantastic. It was by far the best uh, best IPA that I've over there. But other than yeah, that, it was like, very before, good. Uh, yeah, the Kenny one was, was was really good too. But like. They're just kind of struggling at the hops, and it's at the alcohol level. And then I don't say that as like an alcoholic, but like you can't get really above five percent alcohol. And that's again not just looking for a buzz. That's also that plays into the flavor profile. Right. You're gonna right. get you're gonna get thicker, kind of you're gonna kind of spin your wheels a little bit. Right. You know the session IPAs. I understand what uh, I mean. There's there's kind of a move in Ireland, and I, you told me you're doing some research on this for next week. But mm-hmm. there's kind of a move in Ireland to keep things low ABV. So those big uh, double IPAs and those Imperials and all of that stuff, they really haven't shown up over in Ireland yet. Unless you're the underdog, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, the underdog, but, I mean, he's pulling he's pulling beers from all over. I mean, he's pulling them from Britain, Europe. You know, he's even got some, Ameri- some American drafts in there when he can get a hold of them. But anyway, uh, yeah. with, with, it, got me, it got me interested in that, and that's what I'm working on for next week is, is kind of a sizing up by country the uh, the craft beer scene and kind okay. of kind of tallying it up and see what that's what it really got me interested in is like how far ahead uh, by a certain criteria so i'm kind of gathering that research together now so we'll have that for us next week that'll be cool what have you got for us this week well i mean land back in the u.s and it's it's just waiting for us it's just climate change again i know i know we harp on it and that's right. all our first our first ever session was about how climate change is affecting the hot crop up in the pacific northwest but it, it's going to affect everything. It really is. And we, we talk about it. And uh, a new report came out uh, last week, I think, that kind of talks about the other the other ingredient in beer, the other primary ingredient, barley, and how climate change, the rising temperatures, the higher frequencies of drought, it's bad for crops in general, and particularly for, for barley. Uh, Nature Plants, the journal came out and looked at models forecasting climate change, crop production data, and global economic trends. And they, they, it doesn't look, doesn't look good for American beer drinkers or beer drinkers anywhere in the world, for that matter. In fact, it looks worse for other other countries. Yeah, it's 
you know, barley is one of those uh, row crops, uh, grain crops that's very sensitive. It's not as uh, not as widespread in its uh, growing area as say wheat is. Right. It 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 demands kind of kind of exact um, conditions to really to really do well. Absolutely, and if you get the again, you know, the the temperatures are going up, the the droughts are more often and they're more prolonged. And what the, the study came up, they said that it estimates that it could that the crop consumption could drop drop by as much as sixteen percent over the next few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and less, that that means you know, uh, beer, less beer consumption is one thing. Less beer also means pricier beer, and this is what's right. going to hit everybody really in the wallet. Right. Uh, according to the study. Prices could on could double on average, uh, and even in the better case scenarios they ran, they'll see a rise of fifteen percent, which I mean is is huge, you know, for, for the for the drinker on a budget, especially if you're trying to drink craft beer. Right. Well, and it's going to you know it's going to seriously it's going to impact the craft brewers harder than it is the big fellas. I mean, because right. they have buying power, and number one, and secondly, they they don't have any problem with mucking with the the grain content. They don't necessarily. Uh, have to use barley to make their beer, um, but the craft guys, it's gonna. I think it's gonna be very, very. I mean, it's gonna be troublesome. And yeah, uh, well, and 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 yeah. Here's the thing, and uh, I, I don't, I don't understand it. You know, you can, you can argue about what's caused climate change. You can argue about that all day long. Uh, I think most scientists, ninety five percent or more, believe that because we've been dumping. Uh, carbon into the atmosphere at a rate that's just absolutely insane since the industrial revolution so you know almost 300 years we've been dumping carbon into the atmosphere and then of course more more livestock more methane more population more methane so i mean these these greenhouse gases we've been just dumping them into the atmosphere at at a rate that's just and i don't I, i Quite honestly, I think we've hit a tipping point. I don't think we're turning back. I mean, well, I I know we're not turning back. I don't even know if we can stem the tide. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Individual awareness has gone up, and that's fine. And we all do our recycling and everything. But the the fact of the matter is, and what's so important about, you know, the the politics of it is that it's the industrial regulation. The the big guys who are producing all this and dumping all this, and it's not just us. That's why the Paris agreements were so important, because it was everybody agreeing to go by these standards. Um, and I mean, yeah, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's, we, we can do what we can. We can buy our, our hybrid cars. We can bike more, but when it comes down to it, I mean, you don't want to say that one person can't make a difference, but at this point, one person can't make a difference. It's gotta gotta be the the big, the big guys. Yeah. We've got to come together on this deal and we've got, and, and you know, uh, the industrialist, uh, you can have all the money in the world, but if you can't make food, right. Or if you're having food shortages, I mean, you look at, say, you know, the major revolutions, the American Revolution is an exception, but if you look at the other revolutions that have happened in the course of humankind, nine times out of ten, it's been because the, the lower segment of the population had a lack of resources. Right. And, I mean, I think this is just going to cause political instability all over the world. And I know some people might think, well, you're just talking politics. This isn't politics. This is, no, this is reality. This is geo-historical economics. This is like, we can't put our heads in the sand on this anymore. I mean, now we're at, we're at critical mass. 
I mean, the evidence is there. I don't know why people cannot see this. Well, and this is kind of what we're talking about. We're talking about kind of where the rubber hits the road. And this, this, this sadly might be the only way. I mean, it might be just, just you know, some Joe beer drinker having his, his six-pack go up $8.31, which is what they said, the worst-case scenario. And they, they, the other thing is, like, that's just in the U.S. We're actually kind of sitting pretty here as far as beer drinking are concerned. Like, in Ireland, where we just were, they said a six-pack would go up by as much as $20. Right. And, I mean, that mean, and for, like, you know, a country like China, who is kind of beer poor, so to speak, I mean, they might be priced out of the market altogether. Um, right. And so, sadly, it's just, it just might be what it takes uh, for, for, you know, Americans to wake up. The interesting thing about it, uh, kind of in closing on the, on the study part of this, is that, and we've talked about this before too, is that a, a good sign, especially from the United States, is that it seems that the people who have money here are willing to spend a little bit more. If it, at least most of them are starting to, to, to seem willing to spend a little bit more, if it means more sustainability, They're, we're starting to put our money where our mouth is when it comes to uh, consumer driving that, that that political that political shift towards. Uh, responsibility right, when it comes to climate change. I, I think it was a study uh, that Indiana University did where they found that a, more, a majority of Americans are willing to pay as much as like 22 cents more per beer or a dollar 30 per sixer for beer that's produced by sustainable means, you know, like locally right. grown ingredients where possible, produced with wind or, or less waste. So at least I think the consumers are kind of coming along. And that's ultimately what, it, what it's going to have to come down to. It's going to have to be voters and, and bigger than even voters is consumers. If we can put our money where our mouth is, things will follow and that that's another thing that's been historically proven over and over again right you know what was it winston churchill said americans will always do the right thing after they've exhausted every other possibility <laughs> that's right that's uh, right. yeah and you know i say it every week close the show take care of each other and take care of the earth it is everything we've got so with this election coming up and i'm not telling anybody how to vote but i mean if you believe in these things you have a say in, uh, in who represents you in these matters. And I would, I, would, I would suggest that it would behoove everyone do a little bit of research about the candidates and find out who is taking this situation seriously and who is not. Yep. Amen. Well, that's it for this week, man. I, I, it's just so depressing. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not just that our beer. not that our beer prices are going to go up. It's just it's No, just, yeah, but everything else. Uh, yeah. All right, Tony. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know how to end this other than to say <laughs> we might all be so. <laughs> all right, man. I, I'll uh, I'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Alan. All right, take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Brews Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or check out our blog on website, thebrewstraveler.com. Cheers. Cheers, everybody, and thanks again for listening. Uh, that's it for this week. Please check us out over on Facebook at The Brews Traveler Podcast and go on over to iTunes. Please subscribe. Give us a five-star rating and a glowing review. I know I sounded awfully nasally this week, and I really noticed it as I was going back through some of the audio. Uh, it's getting better. It just won't. Elvis won't leave the building. What can I say? I would like to make a shout-out to our friends up at Single Speed Brewing in Waterloo, Iowa. Dave Morgan, who's the owner up there, took a great stance on something that he believed in, and he has gotten a lot of grief over that, but he did the right thing. If you want to know what the story's all about, just Google Single Speed Brewing Company 
and you'll find out. But I commend Dave and all of his staff for standing up for what they believe in. Personal editorial on my part. The soundtrack for The Bruise Traveler is generously provided by our friends Gaelic Storm. Check out what's going on with them over at their website, gaelicstorm.com. Marketing consultation provided by Mission Digital Marketing. So if I don't run into you at your favorite tap room, I'll see you at the pub. Remember, drink locally, think globally, take care of each other, take care of the earth. It's everything we've got. And merrily, you are the measure of my dreams. I do love you. Thanks again, folks. And so long for just a while. From the barn to the cliffs of mall, the farmlands to the factory floor, the streets of cock to your front door, from a heart and soul to your golden shore, from the prison cell to the stony wall, the Cayley dance to the barroom brawl, from the giant steps to Baltimore, the parliament to the old church hall. I can be so near, I can be so far, wherever you go, well, there you are. From an empty nest to a wedding bed To the working wage for the daily bread The ghost, the flesh, the bone and blood The famine fear, the frost and flood The slate, the stone and the granite gray The soft green fields just slipped away The hedgerows and the silver streams Now live inside my thoughts and dreams I can be so near, I can be so far Where you go? From your summer dress to your silken hair The slightest touch at the harvest fair The beating veins have a trembling hand To a coffin ship from stolen land From a last goodbye beneath a lightning tree To a love that lies neath an angry sea The melting snow, the summer breeze November frost in the falling leaves I can be so near, I can be so far Where you go, well there you are To the castle keep From the hungry night A restless sleep In heaven's name A promise given Pain for God But not forgiven The dead of night To the birth of morn The milky way To the blinking door Stars, the moon The hours pass Like sand inside The hourglass I can be so near I can be so far Where From the barn to the cliffs of moor, the farmlands to the factory floor, from the streets of Cork to your front door, from a heart and soul to your golden shore, from the prison cell to the stony wall, the Cayley dance to the barroom brawl, from the giant steps to Baltimore, the parliament to the old church hall. I can be so near, I can be so far. Where you go, where they
must be free, not because we claim freedom, but because we practice it. William Faulkner, Nobel Laureate in Literature. Born September 25, 1897, New Albany, Mississippi. Died July 6, 1962, by Hailia, Mississippi.